Sansei, Okamawa, Pista, Nitsigasa, Nehao, Nipsikopak, Muskochis, Treaty 6, Otinia, Mikwak, Pei de la Loire. Hey everybody, welcome to Medawaywin. I'm your host, Elijah Buffalo, and I'm excited to present this next episode in which I have an in-depth discussion with Dr. Janice Forsyth, an Indigenous researcher who really has her finger on the pulse of Indigenous sports and games and has articulated and shared hers and many others' voices through her work. From a personal perspective, this chat gave me a lot to think about when it comes to participation in sports and how the colonial experience has affected the relationship that I have with sport and really provides context for why I decided to start this podcast. Whether it's the racism I experienced in sports or the lack of support as a developing athlete or the epigenetic effects from my dad's experience with sport, nutrition and trauma in residential school, it's more clear to me after this discussion that no matter the direction I take in life, that sports needs to and will go there as well. I make a glib statement in this discussion about the work being done already by the likes of Dr. Forsyth and others, but as she articulates, there's still so much work to be done in this area. And so with that, please enjoy this chat. My guest today is Dr. Janice Forsyth. Dr. Forsyth is an Associate Professor of Sociology and the Director of Indigenous Studies at Western University in London, Ontario. She's an author and researcher and has written extensively on sport in Indigenous culture and within the intersects of colonialism. And some of her works include the book Reclaiming Tom Longboat, Indigenous Self-Determination in Canadian Sport, and numerous journal articles that expertly investigate Indigenous sport and physical culture and how legislation, policy, organizations, and history are intertwined in the experience of Indigenous peoples in sport and how this shapes contemporary understandings and participation in these activities. In addition to her academic research, Dr. Forsyth works with governments and nonprofits in policy and program development and is the Vice President of the Aboriginal Sports Circle. As someone with a keen interest in this area of research, her expansive work represents an overwhelming but inspirational wealth of knowledge to refer to, and I'm very honored to have her on as a guest to discuss the importance of this physical aspect of community and culture, and how it relates to self-determination, healing, and resurgence of Indigenous people. Janice, welcome to the podcast, and I'd like to provide you with space to introduce yourself. Well, thank you so much, Elijah. I really appreciate this opportunity to be talking with you today. It's uh, definitely an honor. And, you know, for me, just bringing together the, the two things that mean a lot in my life, uh, both sport and being Indigenous Cree from Fisher River, you know, is really meaningful to me. Uh, it's just, I wouldn't understand my life without those two things. And somehow they've shaped my life. You know, in my paid job, I, I, I study Indigenous sport. And in my volunteer role, which is just as important to me as my, my daytime paid job, you know, I get to put into practice, you know, what it is that I understand and, and learn from it as well. So so it's it's an honor to be here today with you just to talk about this and, and to, to continue on this intertwining of the two loves of my life. So growing up, were you involved in sports? Like you just mentioned, the sport is a big part of your life, but I'm just curious about your introduction to to physical movement and organized sport and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, I've um past couple of years, I started telling people more about my story. And I think like a lot of people, I'm not comfortable talking about my story all that much, but I've 
uh, I've, I've learned to start doing it. And, and, and I think that's good because it's really important to talk about, you know, where sport comes from in our life and, and what it means. Cause it's not just, you know, something we do as a fun pastime. It's really a part of who we are, especially for people who are brought up in the culture of sport. And for me, it was my grandmother who, you know, and, and my mother really saw the value of, of sport. My grandmother, um, went to Brandon Indian residential school and was discharged in the late 1930s. And, uh, shortly after that, she had my mom and, uh, my mom grew up on reserve in Fisher river and she didn't have an opportunity to play sport. And so when I came along, you know, she saw it as, uh, and my grandmother saw it as a real opportunity to provide me with opportunities that they didn't have, but also for them, there's a real gendered element to it too. And a real class-based element. They wanted me to grow up thinking, you know, having the things that they thought little girls should have. Right. And so they put me in figure skating and, and ballet and, um, and then horseback riding. And I mean, and these are the kind of sports that my family and most of my friends couldn't afford. And, and our family really couldn't afford it either. I, my grandmother had saved up all of her money when she would go around cleaning hotel rooms in, in Timmins, Ontario, and saved up her money from the logging camps and uh, and use that to put me in sport so I grew up in these uh, rich kids you know white kids sports and uh, and I, I learned a lot being in those environments about uh, you know about being indigenous and about uh, what it's like to be this working class kid in these upper class sports and uh, so I think from a very early age I grew up just knowing something different and being very aware you know of, of being different but at the same time I absolutely love sport. So I had to figure out a way to, you know, to make it work in my life and, and get along in these spaces and, um, you know, and, and try and figure out how to, to just be. And then later on, it was cross country and, and track and field and badminton. And, and eventually that's what I did when I went to university at, uh, at Western, where I, I teach now. Did you compete at the like the collegiate or the, the university level? Yeah, so I, I competed when I was younger as well. And I can't imagine the kind of compromises that my parents would have had to make and my grandmother would have had to make in order to to get me to those competitions, like for ballet and horseback riding and, you know, and figure skating, because those are really expensive. And then when I got to uh, high school, by that point, my, my grandmother had passed away. She was, I was in grade seven when she passed away. I was at a, a badminton practice. I remember the principal coming in and and pulling me out of practice. So when she passed away, you know, we could no longer afford these luxuries. And uh, so I started doing school-based sports. In Timmins, we had a really strong sport-based culture at the high school that I went to as well at Timmins High in vocational school. And so that's where I learned to play more competitive badminton and got a lot of really good coaching up in Northern Ontario uh, as well. I started to, to run theirs, practice for badminton. And then when I got to Western, I initially started there on the badminton team. But the thing was, it was an Ontario-based sport only. It wasn't national. And I really wanted to compete at the national level in something Right. I'd never had that opportunity and I wasn't able to afford it. So uh, so I started running a bit more and trying out for the cross country team. Didn't make it my first year. And in fact, it was a dismal failure my first year. It was almost laughable. And so I uh, went back home to Timmins because my coach told me that I really needed to focus more and get some training and join the track and field team in, in Timmins and uh, came back a much better runner uh, after that. And so I ended up playing badminton for my first three years. And then after that, I had to focus 
uh, on running because I just I couldn't manage cross country running and track and field and badminton at the same time. So that's how I ended up uh, being a runner at Western. In talking about education and the work that you do that is still in this realm of education. Can you talk a little bit about how you developed your research focus in sport and sort of like how, yeah, just how the process came to be that you were able to develop and expand into such a broad area? It's, you know, I think, um, uh, I was by no means a good student. If anybody ever gets a hold of my academic records, uh, I think it tells a story in itself. So um, I, you know, barely made it into university and uh, then scraped my way through my undergrad. But uh, even during my undergrad, I had this real interest in sport and I didn't know how to marry the two because there was no real trajectory for sports studies at the time. It was just an emerging area in the uh, in the early 1990s because I started at Western in 1991 and uh, and I was in history, capital H history at Western. And that wasn't considered a, a serious area of study, you know, sport history. So I would dabble in it. Right. And I would I would write papers for for classes, um, you know, on sport, using sport as a lens to 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 study history, to understand who we are. Uh, But it was a real challenge because, you know, on the one hand, I was an athlete and I was thinking about sport and, and you know, and thinking about it from a nostalgic point of view or from a celebratory point of view, which are very common narratives, you know, that this is the way sport is often written about in, in the popular literature. And I didn't know how to get beyond that. And there was this other other side of me that took Indigenous history really seriously, but I didn't study Indigenous history at Western. There wasn't much of a thread of that here at West or at Western at the time. And uh, so I ended up studying the American Slave South. And I had some wonderful professors, you know, who guided us through those discussions. Uh, in particular, you know, Craig Simpson was um, an amazing mentor from that point of view. You know, I, I would go into classes and just just wonder about how similar in some ways the the culture of the American slave south was to living on reserve in Canada. And I would wonder how is it that all of these slaves who are on a plantation, you know, would stay on plantation, like what would stay there? You know, there were more of them than there were the plantation owners. So why didn't they just like rise up or band together and beat the crap out of the uh, the plantation owners and take over? And so that was me during undergrad, you know, in my monascent years of studies, just, you know, trying to figure out why people did that. And, and I would take that kind of understanding and apply it to, you know, early Canadian history. You know, how come people on reserves didn't just rise up and beat the crap out of the Indian agent? and and take over. And so at some point in time, um, I started to ask, you know, well, where does sport fit into this history of, you know, Indigenous history in Canada? What is the relationship then between, you know, sport and assimilation and self-determination when it comes to Indigenous people? So, you know, when I look back during my undergrad years and the papers that I wrote and the thinking that I had, I could see it back then. It really didn't crystallize for me until 1995, 1996, when I went to the North American Indigenous Games in Blaine, Minnesota. And I went and competed for Team Ontario in track and field. I was so excited to go. I was going to uh, compete against Becky Wells. And at that time, Becky Wells was one of the standout 800 meter runners in the the United States. And she was, um, you know, I would read about her in magazines like Runner's World. 
and uh, you know about her maybe going to the Olympics and I knew if uh, we were on the same track together that she might actually lap me, but uh, <laughs> but I was willing to take the risk anyway. But it was those games that really crystallized the the idea for me that, you know what, there's something really special about the Indigenous games and there's something really different about Indigenous sport. And I really wanted to focus on that somehow. And so I was near the, um, the, the tail end of my undergraduate degree uh, at that point in time. It took me about another year or two. And then I entered into graduate school where I decided to focus on Indigenous sport because um, I knew I, I couldn't do it in history. So I moved over to uh, kinesiology where I studied, um, you know, with the, the folks who were at the Center for the, the International Center for Olympic Studies. So there's this long trajectory when I take a look back that makes sense now. And and uh, in some ways, I just kind of fell into it, stumbled, stumbled along, um, but very aware, you know, of, uh, I think, in my heart of what I wanted to do. And I just, I stayed on that path. And here I am, got very lucky, because uh, there's plenty of people who, um, who I know who are very good students, and they go through school, and um, they've got these ideas, but it doesn't crystallize in the same way, or it doesn't work out in the same way. So I know I'm also very lucky to have... Um, to have been able to stay on this path. In talking with my father this summer and also hearing his story throughout my life and reading his and others' testimony at the TRC, it really became clear that sport was identified and utilized as an assimilative tool in Canada. And in talking about the research that you do and others do that I've come across it's clear that sport was identified early on as something that could be leveraged as a, a tool to assist in the assimilative outcome of Indigenous people. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just talking about uh, that process and how you've been able to focus on that. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd be delighted to. I think... Um... One of the interesting things about being an athlete who studies sport, especially being Indigenous and studying sport and trying to unpack that, and I think this goes with goes for anybody who who is raised in kind of a sporting culture. When you're trying to unpack something, it's really difficult to take a step back and take a look at these practices as something that are you know culturally meaningful. We, you know, a lot of people think a sport is purely technical or somehow it's outside of culture, right? Somehow it falls outside of assimilation, outside of these larger forces that shape our lives. And, and really sport um, is full of consequence and meaning. And that's one of the things that it took a long time, you know, for me to learn and appreciate and talk about in a way that that makes sense. And, and I can see how difficult it is for people who might be thinking this through for the first time how difficult it is for them to think it through because I see it in my students all the time, right? So I'm, I'm faced with this every day. But sport is a cultural practice, not unlike, you know, learning English or a language is a cultural practice or learning ceremony is a cultural practice. Mm -hmm. It is part and parcel of who people are and it has uh, deep consequence and meaning. And so this is why uh, when empire uh, was being created when colonialism or imperialism, I guess, and, you know, in, in its localized context, colonialism it was happening and still happens. Sport 
is a part of that process. And where wherever empires went, like the British Empire, when the British were going to other places or when people visit other places, they bring their sporting cultures with them too. And some people have the resources and the capacity in order to dominate other people and in, enforce you know, their own way of seeing things. And so it's not just a unique practice in Canada. This happens all over the world. The history of cricket is a really good example of that. If you study, you know, sport history at some point in time, you'll probably end up studying cricket because it's one of the most written about sports when we talk about sport and imperialism or sport and, you know, colonization. And so, I, you know, I took those ideas and, um, you know, and other people have too and, and applied them to the Canadian context and, and really where my work fits and my thinking fits is, um, as many academics do, we just add to uh, a piece of history. We, you know, very rarely does anybody ever really completely write a whole new history and that's, you know, completely reshapes the field. It's just that I, you know, I brought this perspective to Canada and, you know, help to, to focus in on one particular aspect of assimilation and, and dove down deep into what sport means in the Canadian context when it comes to Indigenous assimilation. And so it was, um, you know, a tool that was used to reshape Indigenous cultural practices. It was used as a way to reshape the way Indigenous people understood their relationship to the land, to who they were as a people, and to form new attachments to, um, you know, the, the the colonial enterprise, to the British Empire, for instance. And, you know, there's uh, obvious state, there's statements and documents in the historical documentation that tell us this, where people are overtly talking about the need to reshape practices and about the value of sport you know, an Indigenous life and about what it means to, you know, to, to create an empire. So, it, so it's, you know, it's, it's very clear that this was um, in, in many cases uh, an overt conscious practice from the people who are coming over, uh, especially the, the British from the British Empire. But in many cases, you know, it was also unconscious in the sense that people brought over their sporting practices and just thought that that was the way to do sport and that what indigenous people did either wasn't sport or somehow it was tied to their you know outmoded outdated savage ways you know or that it was just irrelevant and that they needed to spend their time doing something more useful more practical more culturally relevant to the new nation state and honestly that that was um a really hard learning for me because, uh, and, you know, and maybe other people have experienced the same sort of thinking and feeling. But for me, it, it led me to think, what does this mean for me then as an Indigenous athlete being brought up, you know, in the culture, culture of sport, not just any sport, right? I'm doing the rich white kids sport. And, um, you know, and what does this mean in terms of my own understanding of who I am as Indigenous does this mean I am fully assimilated? You know, do I reproduce assimilation? Like, who am I now that I know this? And what do I do with my love for a sport now that I know this? How do I, mm -hmm. how do I marry the two? So in many ways, you know, it's very similar to learning English. The language was brought over and we could communicate in a common language and be more cultured and, um, you know, and, and help build empire. And, it, you know, language changes the way we think 
because we, we think in English. It prevents us from thinking in Indigenous ways. And the same with the body, right? When we pick up certain sports, there are values that are attached to, to, to sport, especially competitive uh, elite sport and especially mainstream sport. It's, you know, about the record. It's about winning. It's about dominance. Certainly there's aspects of like, you know, camaraderie and team teamwork and all of that that goes along with it. But at the end of the day, the, the dominant values and competitive sport are about winning. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do with that? So I really struggled once I realized that with trying to figure out who I am uh, with what I know. Yeah. And the one thing that you wrote about the education of the body having significant implications for Indigenous identity, I think really comes out here with that definition of what is appropriate sport and physical activity and the shift to the individuality of education, which is taking place through things like residential school and promoting that Western competitive aspect of identity and participation in sport. And that's something that, uh, like you said, sort of poses a question in your in my identity anyway about my own participation in sport and what is what am I doing with it these days and that's something that I'm realizing through my research and through talking with other people about the holistic nature of sport in our cultures and that it wasn't just the body but also connected to the mind, the heart, the spirit, and really all of those things needing to be focused on in order for personal development to come about. I remember years ago when I just, when I started my master's and uh, my first kind of rubbing up against this academic space was with Catherine Pettipaz, Severing the Ties That Bind. That's the book where she takes a look at the cultural repression um, on the prairies in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, uh, you know, many people would know it as the, you know, the potlatch era, the potlatch laws, uh, where the government would come in and repress people using the potlatch or even the Sundance. And in there, there's actually quite a bit of history about sport in the book. And I was really surprised to to read that because when I picked up the book, I didn't realize that I was picking up a book that also talked about sport, but she does quite a bit. And she talks about how the Indian agents uh, wanted to try and stop people from doing like the sun dance and the potlatch and other ceremonies. And what they thought they could do is just um, legislate it against it. So make it, you know, part of the Indian Act so they could go and, and make it illegal to do those practices. But then they also recognized they had to replace it with something because you can't just create this big void in people's life, right? And not expect there to be some sort of negative repercussion. You can't just take something away and then not expect anything to happen in return. And they knew that the ceremonies were really important to Indigenous people. So they tried to replace it with sport with mainstream sport, right? And so this is where you get the Indian agents going, oh, and we'll host sports days and we'll provide opportunities for them to gather. And, you know, and that will replace their need to meet and do Sundance or their need to meet and do potlatch. And if, if you read the end notes carefully, as we were taught to do in history, and I, I think that's a dying practice now, which I find really sad because the end notes are always this alternative history to, to what's in the main body text. But in the end notes somewhere, she's ta- um, Catherine talks about how um, the elders would still gather and practice their old time ceremonies under the guise of doing sports days. So the Indian agents, um, and you can imagine if you put yourself back in the 1800s or the late 1800s or the early 1900s, the Indian agents were probably patting themselves on the back for, you know, encouraging this cultural conversion by getting people to practice sport instead of doing Sundance. 
when the elders, you know, because when she was taking a look at some of the oral histories, they were doing the sports days and they were asking for money to do the sports days and they wanted organizing to do the sports days, but they did it because they knew that it would distract the Indian agents from looking the other way when they were still practicing their old time ceremony somewhere else. So in a way, it was... Um, it was this really neat distraction. So the elders too, at some level knew that sport was being used as a tool for assimilation, but they themselves were using it. They were exerting their own agency with, you know, within a limited space to go and practice their old time ways. And that's how some of the ceremonies survived, right? Is through buying into these sporting practices so that they could also still do their, their, their old time ceremonies to keep their culture alive. And that was the first time that I, that I really kind of rubbed up against that that experience, it was like, well, okay, I grew up in the city and I grew up away, you know, from my community and, and my community too, you know, really, really struggled like a lot of communities do. And I, I only know sport, right? I, I mean, I, I grew up doing a little bit of powwow, um, but not a lot. And so what, is, what does it mean then for me to, to not have, you know, that cultural alongside sport? But anyway, that was my first real experience, uh, academic experience, reading about, you know, this real complex space of sport, you know, in Indigenous lives. And that really inspired me to, to dig down deeper about this relationship. And uh, while I wasn't doing these kind of community-based studies and I wasn't studying it in the context of ceremony, I gravitated more towards residential schools, partly because that seemed to be where a lot of the discussion was going, where my own family history had settled, you know, and where my head and, and heart just kind of landed at the time. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, the trajectory for me, Catherine Pettipaw, severing the ties that bind. All right. Yeah, I'm going to check that out for sure. Yeah, it's funny that before I really started to focus on sport really as a research topic and something that that would really sort of drive me in this in this sense I really didn't know that there was all this information already out there and I mean it's just great that like if I think of something it's like already guaranteed that like researchers like yourself have already written so much about it and in a sense it's uh, comforting to know that this information is out there and that people are already have done the work I actually, I think, I think a lot of the work hasn't been done yet. Well, the, the vast majority of the work hasn't been done yet. And uh, so I'm really like, I'm inspired to see people like yourself, you know, and other people having these discussions now, deeper discussions about sport. Because I can tell you, you know, when I first started in, in the 1990s, uh, you could count on one hand, like in Canada, how many people were having this kind of discussion and, you know, and we weren't publishing really widely on it. And so now, you know, I think it, it's starting to flourish and that that's really exciting for me because I, you know, I want to get beyond the sports scores. I want to get beyond the, the celebratory narratives or the, you know, the nostalgic kind of part of, of sport and really talk, dive down deep, you know, about what it means in our life. Like where, where do we come, you know, like, where have we come from? Um, you know, how did we get to this moment in time and, and what do we do with it now? Like now that it's right in front of us, like, you know, what do we do with it? And honestly, like I find these bits of wisdom in just in, in strange places. I just, I, you know, reading like in places that I would never expect them. I was reading at the bridge, uh, the history of a uh, James Tate, or uh, I think that's his name. And it's this wonderful book that came out about in the last three or four years. And it's about this anthropologist who ended up in, you know, 
in BC and uh, it's in the late 1800s and he does a lot of work with the, the Indigenous people in the surrounding area and at one point he becomes an advocate for them in Ottawa and he works a lot with the, the elders um, in that area because he learns to speak the languages there. And in, in some of his writing, he talks about how the elders remember their people being much healthier before the, the colonists came. And, you know, and there's this one beautiful statement in the book where the elders talking about how, you know, they were taller, they were uh, stronger, they were um, more agile, you know, more fleet of foot. And they said uh, this is because they had their own sports and games as Indigenous people. And, you know, that meant a lot to them. And then when the colonists came, all of that changed. And now the people are unhealthy. So you, you find these bits of wisdom that other researchers, you know, historians kind of stumble upon and they put them in their book, you know, as a way to show how much things have, you know, changed. So it's not as if it's like all out there in one piece. And, uh, it's, you know, we're finding it too in dribs and drabs and, I know, uh, I think Brendan Hakowitsu, for instance, he's an Indigenous scholar from New Zealand, and he wrote this beautiful piece not too long ago. Um, it's almost like an autoethnography about how he feels about doing physical education, you know, in, in the mainstream context. And, um, and the way I read it was, you know, it's about this violence that he's done to his body and to his self. Right. And and, and I, I think it's just a, a stunning, beautiful piece. And I would love to see more people write about things like that, you know, to crack open those spaces that we need to get into so that we can explore them more fully and not just go, oh, it's sport. Let's just do more sport. Mm -hmm. And sport is good for us. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like we, we need to explore it and see what parts are good, what parts work, what parts don't, what parts you know, are still, you know, um, dragging down our culture and what parts facilitate us. Yeah. I'm just thinking about your comments about the elder, how they utilize sport uh, and noticing drastic differences between people who practice physical activity and how that correlated with health. And I think there is space out there now where people are identifying the need to do some kind of movement for health. And it's uh, interesting because a lot of the personal training that people do, they might not associate that with sport and games because it's really just engaging in a type of movement for health's sake. And for a lot of the activity that I do as a road cyclist, where I'm not necessarily racing, I'm out there training and just riding my bike around, essentially, that it's not really considered a game. Because going back to something you're talking about, about language is that the way that we understand these activities is through the lens and understanding of a use of the colonizer's language. And so there's a difference between playing and training to a lot of people when they think about these activities. And some sports you don't play, like track and field. I don't think that people say like, yeah, I'm going to play. So I think it's uh, interesting that this is an area where we can sort of expand on, on our participation and what we're considering to be an appropriate use of, of this part of our cultures. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I think it's also really important to, to recognize that, um, I mean, sport is with us. It's not going to go anywhere in our lifetime, I don't think. You know, and organized sport is very different than things that we do in our own time for fun. You know, whatever that looks like, like, a, like away from a, a sporting organized competitive context. But the thing about organized sport is uh, like it can be healthy. 
Absolutely. You know, and it, like I, I did it and I, I feel better when I do, uh, well now I don't do organized sport, but I, I feel better when I get on my bike and ride and I do a workout or I'm challenging myself that way. And, and, and certainly there's like a, you know, one way of seeing it. So that's a healthy part of something that I do. Cause I, I want to fit in my pants, you know, <laughs> I want my heart to be healthy. I want my mind to be clear. But the interesting thing about organized sport is that it's divorced from land. And, and that's one of the, one of the fundamental differences, uh, between indigenous sport before before colonization really set in and you know the mainstream sporting context today so if we take the example of hockey for instance um, you know Canada's favorite pastime and a game that is played widely in many indigenous communities you know throughout Canada but it's it's divorced from an understanding of the land so when we play hockey and we meaning like either indigenous people or non-indigenous people it's not like there's a connection to the land like there was before um, when people were doing their old time, you know, games and practices, because uh, before colonization set in, when Indigenous people, you know, engaged in their own physical practices, there was a connection to the land, as well as many other things, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, this is how they knew the land. And this isn't my work, you know, this is uh, Michael Heine's work, and, you know, Vicki Parashak's work and other people, but I've learned from it. And, you know, they, they lived their life on the land and life was really hard. And, and so they had to train to live on the land. And but it was also more than that. It's how they knew the land, their land was who they were, the land was where their ceremonies were. So everything came back to the land, you play hockey, and it's not, you know, about the land. It's about this well defined space that has all of these rules about what you could do in that space. Um, I mean, take a look at the technical rule book for playing hockey. It's like hundreds and hundreds of pages long. I mean, it's, you know, mind blowing kind of minutia and it's not, you know, uh, the same sort of attachment. So there's this, there is like a really a fundamental difference between, you know, these dominant mainstream ways of understanding organized sport and the way indigenous sport, indigenous people did sport with their own games and practices. Like it's a fundamental gulf between the to that you, you just can't bridge even though people try and bridge it they talk about hockey as like you know it's my religion or you know it's my type of ceremony or I feel you know this sort of way playing hockey it's you know you can try and explain it that way all you want but it definitely isn't the same so I think you know and th this is a kind of struggle that we you know the, the kind of struggle that we have today so if we're going to play hockey and we're indigenous then what does it mean in that kind of context well okay it's it's healthy you know it can be a healthy practice for you it can be about building community because it's a way for people to come together. Maybe it's a form of race relations. You know, some people see hockey and sport as a way to, you know, form relationships with other people as a form of race relations. Maybe some people see it as a way to get out of community and to, you know, to, to secure better opportunities for themselves somewhere else. Maybe it's a way to get education and so on and so on. So it means something different now. Mm-hmm. Just trying to think about how to transition to talking about gender and sport. You know, you can talk about how organized sport was, you know, mostly about men. Yeah. In the 1800s, you know, and that was, you know, and that and then I could talk about the Victorian ideal and, you know, and how that was embedded in the reserve system and how that was embedded in the residential schools and, you know, and what that means today for health. Yeah, I think from the perspective of residential schools and how they were used really to promote this idea of heteropatriarchy and these gendered systems that uh, split up boys and girls and really promoted the male idea of what an athlete is. And that seems to be a large part of collective decolonization that I 
I see occurring amongst people in my community and my peers that there's this conscious effort to take a look at how we understand gender. And I know for myself, thinking that I was always really open-minded to these things and to to really look into these my own heteropatriarchy in the last little while and realize that, yeah, especially in sport, there were ways that I was just promoting this uh, unbalanced idea of what of what it is to be inclusive and to accept people and seeing how that came about through sport, through the Indian Act and through residential schools is is interesting. And yeah, I just wanted to see what you thought about that issue. Yeah, I mean, so sport has certainly shaped the way Indigenous people understand themselves uh, as gendered beings, as, you know, male and female. And so this is part of the, the deeper meaning you know, about sport that we need to unpack and not just accept uncritically, you know, we needed to, to take a step back and really explore what it means to do sport and what effect that is having on our ideas about sex and, and gender. So if you think about sport in the late 1800s, well, the mid 1800s to the late 1800s and early 1900s, especially during the Victorian era. And this is when we see certain ideas about femininity and masculinity being taught and reinforced through sport and physical activity. And those, of course, are wrapped, you know, in and alongside with ideas about race and ethnicity and and nation as well. But this is when you see very strict ideas being imposed on men and women, the creation of the two-sex binary system in sport that we have today and still are struggling with today, especially as more and more people are challenging ideas about gender, which are also attached to ideas about sex, biological sex, because there there is a spectrum there. But this is when we see Indigenous women especially being marginalized from the growing practice of sport. There's, you know, some really good examples in old anthropological writings about Indigenous women being very, you know, strong and being very active and being very fleet of foot. And uh, in a way, them being put down by the writers of the time because they're looking at it through their own male lens. Right. And they don't fully they don't they don't appreciate, you know, what they see in the same way. They think it's abhorrent. They think it's wrong. And so they attach value to that because, you know, women weren't supposed to be girls and women weren't supposed to be doing active sports uh, or activities that were, you know, really hard work. Never mind the fact that they were the ones also setting up the camp. (laughs) <laughs> you know, doing a lot of the uh, leading the men through the woods or, you know, in the case of the residential schools, the, the hard work of taking care of the schools. And I mean, and this was extreme, right? Like you, you have doctors who are advocating in the late 1800s that women shouldn't even be or in the mid 1800s that women shouldn't even be swinging like on a swing, like where you go to a park and you swing because they thought it was just too dangerous because they thought it would displace the womb. And then, oh, my God, you know, the bicycle when the bicycle came along doctors thought that women you know would displace their womb they were also just morally 
they, they just thought it was morally abhorrent because they thought the women were masturbating on the bikes as they were riding along the bumpy roads, right? And so women were encouraged uh, and in fact actively discouraged and prevented from doing sports. And this too was done on reserve, where if there were opportunities, it was provided to men and not just to do sports, they were actively encouraged to do violent sports in a way or to be, you know, aggressive in sports because that was, you know, the, the manly thing to do. Uh, that was the good training ground for men you know, to, to train boys how to be men. And so today, you know, we have remnants of that. And we we see it in some ways in the fewer opportunities and the, and the fewer, the lower participation rates of girls and women in sport, and whether it's on reserve or in the cities. Oftentimes, you know, they're the ones who are taking care of the kids and the families. And there's no doubt about it. You know, these are really important roles and they, you know, take value in their roles because I see it every day too. But these are also structured, right? These opportunities have been structured. They've been challenged into that. Whereas before, there would have been supports around them to enable them to be active and healthy and, you know, part of community and to be strong. And, and so all of that has been uh, ripped away, you know, in many cases by sport. There's, there's this real kind of gendered, mainstream, Victorian, kind of British, you know, the, the, the muscular Christianity ideal of femininity that we're still working through today. And, and what's beautiful, and so you talked about earlier about like all of, you know, the work has been done, like I think hardly any of the work has been done. There's this real need to talk about gender and sex you know, from Indigenous viewpoints in sport. And so, I mean, how how wonderful would it be if people went and talked to elders, the language holders, like the people who actually think in their language, you know, and to people who hold the ceremonies and talk about, okay, well, you know, what does sex and gender mean? And what do we remember, you know, about what women used to do and how strong they were? And how does that align with or, or not, you know, with sport today? And so this is my point about how is sport supporting our cultures or how is it still breaking it down? Like if we don't have sports that support, you know, young women, especially if they're taking care of kids or taking care of families. Mm-hmm. Like if we don't have that, then is is that really helping us? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> well, it's a question, right? So it's a question that we need to talk about. And it's really difficult to talk about it because, you know, a lot of the, the discussions in sport are about barriers and facilitators. Like everywhere I go, everybody talks about barriers and facilitators. And, and in the academic uh, writings, it's about barriers and facilitators. And so what are the barriers to sport? You know, and what facilitates your involvement in sport? And those discussions are often devoid of an attachment to culture. Those discussions are often devoid of a much larger discussion about, well, what does gender mean, you know, to people up in the far north or to, you know, the the Mi'kmaq in the far east or to, you know, maybe the Coast Salish out west or to whoever, you know, and then like once you set it in that kind of a cultural context, maybe get rid of this kind of framework of barriers and facilitators. It's like, what does hockey look like in our culture, in our language? And that's like a whole new framework. That's a whole new discussion. That's a whole new way of thinking like about sport. And we're not there yet for the most part. We we are not there yet. And that's where I like, I would love to see us go, but I'm just one person. And there are plenty of people who just, you know, who don't want to go there. And, and, I, and I get it because, you know, there are plenty of you know, other really important pressing things going on in community around child welfare, around safe drinking water, around, you know, um, resource extraction. But at the same time, from my point of view, it's really important because we are talking about the kids and we are talking about culture and we are talking about the future. So at some point, I I do hope we get there where we can talk about these things more openly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just going back to 
to these systems that were disrupted from policy and legislation and that we're seeing shifts occur in uh, the last little while, such as uh, the governance systems, uh, which are still imposed through the Indian Act, but how we're seeing more and more women leaders, but how that is uh, a big carryover from this culture that was imposed through promoting males as the athletes and as the leaders and how that really created that sense of, you know, this old boys club that people speak of. And and I think for me, you know, one of the reasons why I do this work is to expose that history, is to show people that history, you know, because that in part shows us how we got to this moment in time. And it's similar to and different from, you know, what has happened to, you know, the rest of the people in Canada, because they have different forms of shackles, right, that they need to unpack, because life is about constantly unpacking the shackles that hold you down or hold you back. And so, um, you know, if I can contribute like that little bit to make that discussion go a little bit further further than I think I'll have done my job as a researcher because it just it makes it so much easier then to have those discussions rather than us trying to figure out about what has happened in the past. It's like, well, no, actually, we know how this happened. We have, you know, a type of sport that was imposed on us that displaced our own forms of physical cultural practices. It was legislated, you know, in some cases, and then it was done, you know, in very controlled environments like the residential school. And now it's done through policy and funding, the the million cuts that happen on reserve where you you, you can't afford to to do sport in the way that you need to, um, where you you can't even afford to do sport in the way that you need to in the city. And, you know, if you don't do it this way, then you'll never get the funding. If we can expose that, then it just makes it easier to go, okay, now that we know that, where do we go? Mm -hmm. You know, where do we go from here? Uh, Because we can't go back. I mean, we, we can't, go back to the land like we you know, were before colonization, that's never going to happen. We need to find a new way forward, knowing what we know now and knowing what we know, period. Yeah. And I think that's a, this would be a good time to talk about the TRC calls to action. And just within my own circle of colleagues and friends and family, there's a real big focus on it now, especially since they discovered the the graves. And I don't know how many questions I had from people or just comments about that they, this is the first they're hearing about it and that kind of thing. And then seeing organizations really push to, to have a more inclusive organization through hiring and things like that. And how now, after six years, there's a, a renewed focus on the TRC calls to action. And thinking about it from a sporting aspect, how do we see ourselves in that? And how do those calls to action, how is meeting them going to enact positive change in our communities? And just wanted to know since you work closely in this field, what is going on in the, in this landscape and how do we find meaning in it? In it? Well, I think, you know, for me, I remember uh, when the TRC came out and I was so excited to see the calls to action for sport because it signaled the importance of sport as a cultural practice, not just to Indigenous people, you know, like in, in the past, but in the present, you know, in, in trying to find a way forward and not just, you know, as uh, something that didn't need to be thought through. Like if, if it's in their TRC and if it's a call to action, it means that we need to take the time to unpack this area of life as a cultural practice in the same way that we are trying to unpack education 
as a cultural practice, as a system that has been set up to displace Indigenous forms of education, as child welfare that has been set up as a system that has displaced Indigenous forms of child welfare in their own understandings of how to care for children in community. And we need to unpack that. So you take every institution and you need to unpack it. And for me, I try not to get too bogged down in the actual calls to action, because I think if, if that's what we do, then we might be missing the wider landscape. But I, but I, I appreciate the calls to action because they signal important areas that need to be addressed. Policy and legislation, the, the way in which we tell the history you know, of Indigenous sport in Canada to actual events where youth are being funneled into. And the one thing for me that I keep coming back to and that drives the TRC, that drives like my interest and, and the people that I know is that this is about the youth. Everywhere I go, people always say, well, we're doing it for the youth. And then this, you know, sport is for the youth. And we're thinking seven generations forward and we, we have to consider the future. And that is absolutely true. The other areas like of, of social life that deal with children are education and child welfare and sport. Those are the main areas where the kids are located. And so for me, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm so passionate about the, the TRC because it really signals that importance to me. The fact that we need to unpack sport as an institution, not just as a cultural practice where we put people on the podium. That, that's important to me. Okay. But really it's meaningless next to the larger issue of what do we do with our culture in the future? That to me is about the youth. Right. And that is that that's why, you know, we need to talk about what does sport mean to, to us and to who we are as a people, because if, if we're going to reclaim our cultures, if we're going to rebuild our culture, if we're really going to engage in self-determination and decolonization, then we need to think about the role of sport in our lives, because that's where the kids are. And we have all of these different corporations and all of these different nonprofits that are going for the kids through sport. And it's good, you know, that they're there because our kids need something to do. They need to be healthy. They need to engage in these activities too. But we need to give some thought and we need to be given the resources to put some thought to and to do something about what happens when our kids go into those spaces. I mean, I can't imagine at this moment in time, Indigenous people across the country being okay with our kids going into high schools or going into post-secondary schools where we're not also talking about Indigenous language or Indigenous knowledge. I mean, if the dominant language, if the only language that could be practiced in these spaces was English, still, I'm pretty sure people would be upset. I would hope they would be upset. And I hope there would be, you know, lobbying and activism against that, you know, and I believe there would be because we see it. So we know we are very passionate about reclaiming our languages. So and there needs to be, and there is a real passion growing for the same understanding of sport and what happens to our kids in those spaces. So that's why the TRC is so important, not just to me, but to, you know, most of the people who I know and talk about, because like I'm, I work with like-minded people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That the focus on the youth is interesting. And sometimes when I think about it, I think about, oh, myself, I'm not a youth. So how do I fit into this? And how can people of my generation benefit from these changes? And I think about education and how, like sport, it's a, a lifelong process that we can engage in and we should engage in in order to have this holistic personal development. And sometimes I can get a little critical of, of these models where they're focused solely on the youth and these systems that come from general westernized systems of like uh, U19 or U23. And maybe it's like a selfish belief, but it's like, yeah, like how... 
how do older athletes fit into it? And that was one of the things that really came about after the 2008 NAG, where for British Columbia, they said they weren't going to field an adult team. And I was like, just still young at that point. And I was like, why is this organization putting up this barrier? Going back to what you're saying about barriers and facilitators that is preventing people from participating in this because I was at that point pretty much just getting back into sports and hearing about the Indigenous Games and getting really excited for it. Then learning that that I wouldn't be able to compete was pretty disappointing. But just going back to fitting into community, one of the things that I, I see is that, yeah, like we definitely have to focus on the youth and that's where a lot of this change has to occur because they're the ones that are vulnerable and that really need the support. But how can we utilize all this focus on health and wellness to improve the lives of, of everybody? Because there's so many people that need healing and, and sport is, is one of the ways that is essential in this process of reconnecting with the land and having that relationship renewed with, with community and with identity. Yeah. And I mean, and that's a great question, right? So I think there is a growing movement to organize events, all Indigenous events for adults, but it it is slow coming because the focus tends to be on the youth. And then what happens after that is that adults are expected to uh, move into the mainstream sports system, right? Where if, if they want to move on to higher levels of competitive development, they have to go into the usual kind of established channels in order to do that. And otherwise, it, it's Hard. Otherwise, you're you're just kind of left hanging. So, I mean, I understand there are events like the, you know, the Masters Indigenous Games that had some sort of momentum before COVID hit, you know, and where that lands after COVID, I, I can't tell you at all. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball and I just, I don't know these things, but I, I hear you. And I think for me, when I think about the mainstream sports system, you know, aside from all Indigenous events, uh, there, there needs to be kind of a, a serious attempt to address racism in sport so that, you know, people like yourself and in myself, if I ever chose to compete again, and I probably never will, you know, feel like that space actually belongs to us too. And that there is no, you know, factors that push us out. And if there are factors there, then at least we have reliable channels to actually address the problems that exist in sport, because we know abuse in sport is widespread. Racism in sport is like underreported and it's it's widespread. I mean, the system in academic terminology is, you know, it's a white stream system because the system is set up to privilege people who are typically white and uh, middle upper class uh, and male. So um, we are talking about a very specific population that uh, the system supports. And uh, I mean, aside from that, like why not develop all, of, you know, all indigenous spaces for adults? You know, maybe that's like the next stepping stone that comes from the Indigenous Games, because I do remember kind of feeling the same way about the new age restriction with the NAG. And I mean, I, and I understand the policy decisions for doing that because it's impossible to provide opportunities for all ages at an event like that. They just, they don't have the funding or the capacity to do that. But maybe that's the momentum. Like maybe that was the policy shift, you know, that's needed to create and bring more momentum to these other games, like the Masters Games, if 
if they can be a vehicle for people feeling like their culture is supported in the same way that the youth um, North American Indigenous Games are supported. So I understand. I, I agree. I think there's a void there. And I think it is really important for older people to be active. It's healthy, you know, in, in so many different ways. Like the olden days, I can tell you, you know, it's a place for people to gather and collect and talk and, and organize, you know, if, if there's one kind of constant that Indigenous people have, you know, in the different areas that they travel to, is we will organize, <laughs> give us a space, we will talk, and we will organize, and uh, we'll find a way to make that space to help us move ourselves forward as people, and we do that through sport. Yeah, this gives me a lot of a lot to, to think about, like, where can we go with redefining our participation? And even though it's been identified to keep the NIG going, is that really something that is essential to this resurgence and revitalization of physical activity? And perhaps there's other ceremonies and events that can be created. And, and I think that's a good way mm -hmm. to, to think about it. Yeah. You know, or, and, and with the NIG too, I mean, it's such a unique space because, uh, you know, you get people from Canada and the United States who are coming together for this major international festival and sport and culture, you know, are these two things that are intertwined at this event. And the NIG are fundamentally different in so many ways from the mainstream system, because at the NIG, you can be someone who, you know, is being introduced to the sport and you could be competing alongside an Olympian, you know, or a national team athlete for all you you know, and in many cases, I know how in some places you might be a medal winner. So you might come first, second or third. But in many cases, the real perspective that is being taught and rewarded is that, you know, you could be a medal winner, but it's only for the moment that you actually win the medal. You know, going to the games in and of itself is like a real accomplishment and is is the real prize. And so at the NAG, you know, they have team awards that aren't just for the best team. You know, there, there's other awards that are given out for the team, for instance, with the most spirit. And you can see how this event is just trying to promote values other than coming first, which is a very mainstream kind of dominant way of understanding sport. I've been to the, the 95 games, then the 2002 games and the 2008 games. And each games always brings something really special that just stays with my heart. And it reaffirms for me how different and unique and special these games are. And, and if these kids didn't have this, if they didn't have that, then they wouldn't learn something different through sport. So there's a way to teach culture. There is a way to teach something different through sport and still bring that to mainstream sport if those athletes want to go there like I did. But then they realize it's it's not the only thing. They have this other place where they can be and they and they know something different. Yeah. Just in talking about that, it's like, oh, like sort of unpacking my own thoughts of that process that I had that like feeling really jaded about the process. Yeah. Like just giving me a new perspective on how I felt at the time and how I feel about it now, I guess. So yeah, that's great. It's tough, right? When you lose that connection, because, and I think that's what we're talking about here in a way. So if you've competed at the, the Indigenous Games like I have, and then there's nothing after, it's hard, right? Because you feel like you've lost your lifeline in a way. And, and that's really important for so many people because you know, 50% of the people now are living in urban centers and in a way we're dislocated from our own community and we're trying to find a way in the new places that we're living in because that's just the way of the, the modern world. Like that's just the way it is, right? We've got to go out and, and go to these places and, you know, we travel all over the world and sometimes live someplace else. And for many of us, you know, we have, we find in community through sport. And so if we don't have that community after the North American Indigenous Games, then what? Then what do we do? 
And that's, that's really difficult. And, it, you know, in a way, it actually warms my heart to think that we're talking about the same thing, that we feel the same way. Um, for me, it was a little bit different because I was able to translate that connection into volunteerism, right? Volunteering as a chef de mission, for instance, for 2008 in Cowichan, volunteering now for the Aboriginal Sports Circle and, you know, and doing all sorts of other things. Because like you, I couldn't let it go. I didn't want to let it go because it, it is a part of who I am. And if I lost that connection, I don't know. I'd feel like, um, you know, a feather dangling in the wind and I, I would be lost. And so I need that grounding. And so that's, you know, why I'm still here. Yeah. I think that like the transition from athlete to coach is something that can be focused on in, in this part of the discussion. And that's something that I'm thinking a lot about. I've done some hockey coaching for my stepson and I went through like the run, jump, throw program and now I'm, I'm really thinking more about how, to, how can I make that transition to being a coach? And that's probably one of the, the next steps that I'll take in my participation in sport. Yeah, I mean, and that's great too, right? Like I thought I'd be a coach for a little while and I went and got my, you know, level one NCCP coaching certification and then realized that I didn't really want to be a coach. That wasn't for me. I thought I was better off as a volunteer slash administrator. And so that's where I ended up going. Yeah, but it's just, it's really good to hear and see more, you know, Indigenous people wanting to get involved somehow, right, to maintain their involvement. Because the more people we have, like in the system, the more people we have getting involved, like the more the system will change. Uh, it's just like education, right? You know, uh, when I work in the post-secondary school system, when I put on my professor hat and go work at Western, you know, we talk about what it's going to take in order to create change. And, and for sure, you know, there's a really important element is trying to educate our colleagues about Indigenous research, Indigenous knowledge, Indigenization, systemic change at the, the post-secondary institutional level. But there's also the corollary discussion, which is about getting more people in the system, like getting that critical mass, you know, I mean, it, it's never going to be a ton just because our, our numbers won't allow it. You know, we're, you know, 5% of the population, give or take, but, you know, getting enough people in the system to not feel like you're totally isolated, to be talking a common language, to be talking a common experience, to be, you know, making arguments for the same kind of change, you know, or at least pushing change forward. And the same in sport, the more our numbers grow, whether it's coaches, you know, referees, officials, administrators, volunteers, the better off we're all going to be because your voice, whether you don't even get like NCCP, whether you're just there, you know, talking to your coaches and officials, maybe volunteering for a board, you know, maybe getting a vote as a board of director, like who knows? That is so important. We just need more people out there talking and doing in order to create that change. Whether the change is small, tweaks are really important. We often mm -hmm. talk about like the minor shifts that are needed or the massive cultural shifts that are needed, like racism in sport, right? Like more funding for community-based sport, not just on a per capita basis, but like actually funding community-based sports so they can afford to travel from their community to the city as opposed to, oh, we'll give you bikes or badminton rackets or tennis rackets or running shoes or hockey equipment, but you can't afford to leave your community. So, you know, good luck. Yeah. Well, I think we could probably start to wrap it up. Was there anything that you wanted to, to add to the discussion? that we didn't cover? No, I think this was, this was really rich. Um, Elijah, I really appreciate it. So I, yeah, and I'm, I just, I think this is a, a great, a great, great discussion. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and, and talk today. There's so much more to the topic, like you said, and we've only really scratched the surface of, of where this topic can, can go. And yeah, I just wanted to say that 
I really appreciated you coming today. And yeah. I appreciate you too.